What strikes me the most as I prepare this talk, that this is actually not just a question that was being asked by all of us in our modern days, who is our neighbor? But this is a question that was being asked by an expert of the law 2,000 years ago in Jesus' time. Who is my neighbor? As Andrew explained earlier this month, in Mission Month, this is actually the story that was given to us. And Jesus was teaching everyone who is their neighbors. The answer that Jesus gave on this story was actually spot on in Luke chapter 10. This guy is a Samaritan. He is the outcast, according to the Jews. However, what he did was biblical. And everyone, including the expert of the law back in the time, and everyone of us actually knows it. We must share the gospel to everyone, both in words and in deeds. It crosses boundary of ethnicity, of race, socioeconomic status. We ought to love them like God does. Not only did Jesus surprisingly answer, who is the neighbor to the Samaritan, but what the Samaritan did was extraordinary. But the question is, why? Why did the Samaritan do this kind of thing? Well, the command to love strangers and to love those who are different than us was actually first written in the Torah. And what the Samaritan did here is extraordinary because this Samaritan actually was following the law. And this law was given not only to the Jews, but also to the Samaritan. The passage that we just read today was very clear that the people of God ought to love their neighbors. So for example, in verse 10 to 13 of this chapter, it is a command about giving loan to stranger, to non-Israelite. Don't abuse them, basically. In verses 14 to 15, it is a command to be fair to your workers, those who may or may not be an Israelite. Verses 17 to 18, the command here is actually do not take from those who are defenseless. This is the widows and the orphans. And also verses 19 to 24, it is about being generous. Be generous to everyone, those who are in need. Don't be stingy. And this series of commands was actually given in this book all the way from chapter 12 to chapter 26 to the people of God to the Israelites, who was about to enter the promised land under the leadership of Moses. And Moses here has foreseen that this is what's going to happen to the people of God in the promised land. And some of the people actually ask, why? Why do we have to do this command? Why does it really matter for us? A child of a Jewish family, for example, may ask her parents, and this is what the parents ought to say, according to Moses. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 6 from verse 21. We were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, the Lord sent miraculous signs and wonders, great and terrible, upon Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. But he brought us out from there to bring us in 
and give us the land that he promised on, on, on oath to our forefathers. The Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear the Lord our God, so that we might always prosper and be kept alive, as is the case today. And if we are careful to obey all this law before the Lord our God, as he has commanded us, that will be our righteousness. So Deuteronomy chapter 12, all the way to 26, contain commands to the people of God. This is something they, they ought to obey, including our passage that we just read today. But why do they have to obey them? That's the question. So first, perhaps the most obvious reason why Israel are to obey God's laws, because it shows that they are different. Again and again, in these chapters, we read that Israel are to do certain things because they are holy to the Lord. They are distinct. They are separate. They are different. So, for example, in chapter 12, Israel are to worship in a different way to the nations because they are different. In chapter 12, verse 4, you must not worship the Lord your God in their way, but you are to seek the place the Lord your God will choose. So don't worship where they worship. Destroy their place of worship because you are different. And also, not only just that they have to worship differently, even what they eat reminds them that they were different. So, for example, in chapter 14, verse 2, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. He has chosen you to be his treasured possession. So it's not a matter of hygiene, of getting sick, but to be different, to be separate in every area of life. And also in our reading today, they need to be different when they treat their neighbor who is needy. Chapter 24 starting from verse 10. When you make a loan of any kind to your neighbor, do not go into their house to get what is offered to you as a pledge. Stay outside and let the neighbor to whom you are making the loan bring the pledge out to you. If the neighbor is poor, do not go to sleep with their pledge in your possession. Return their cloak by sunset so that your neighbor may sleep in it. Generosity instead of greediness. Giving up instead of taking advantage. It was a truth that was hammered into the Jews generation after generation, century after century, until it became so central into their identity that their thinking has shifted. They began to think that it was doing these laws that made them clean that made them separate, that made them holy. When the reality was that God already made them holy, God already made them his people. He already made them the people that he treasured. And this loss was just to remind them that they were holy and separate. Which means now, we who are in Jesus, we do not need to keep those laws. To remind us that we are different. We have been made God's people in Jesus, that he paid our sins. He already set us free. Instead, we are called to do other things to show that we are different. 
all sort of verses in the New Testament we could look into and suggest us that we need to living in a certain ways to show that we are holy. So for example, from 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 9 to 12, it is a remarkable passage from verse 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of wrongdoing, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And that's actually much harder, but more far-reaching than simply just what you wear. The second reason Moses gives for obeying the law is that it reminds Israel of God's goodness. In chapter 15, verse 12, if a fellow Israelite became a slave to settle a debt, make sure that you release him after seven years. And that is just, compassionate, and generous to this person. Why? Because in verse 14, Give to him as the Lord your God has blessed you. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. That is why I give you this command today. So being generous and compassionate, actually these things isn't a way of earning God's favor. It is a good reminder for them and also for us of God's goodness. And also in Deuteronomy chapter 24, starting from verse 17, Do not deprive the foreigner or fatherless of justice, or take the cloak of the widow as a pledge. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. That is why I command you to do this. Same here. Remember God's goodness to you. And that motivation, that doesn't change with Jesus. Like the commands to celebrate sacraments, the Lord's Supper, and baptism, they both remind us of God's goodness. Both sacraments are actually visual cues, just like lots of Israel's laws back in that time, to help us who often forgetful and faithless to remember and to trust and to be thankful for God's good gifts. Jesus has given them for us, for our good. Now, the third reason Moses gives for obeying God's laws is because obedience reflects God's characters. So his people basically should be like him, like God. God is just and compassionate and reliable, and his people reflect those qualities as they keep his laws. So for example, in chapter 15, it's okay to lend money, but every seven years, cancel every debt. It doesn't really make good business sense, but it reflects God's generosity and goodness and forgiveness. In chapter 16, verse 18, for example, judges are to be just, not show partiality, don't accept bribes, for example, but make sure that there are, there are two witnesses, make sure the punishment fits the crime. Because that sort of justice reflects God's character. He loves justice. 
in chapter 24, verse 14, Do not take advantage of a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether the worker is a fellow Israelite or a foreigner residing in one of your towns. Pay them their wages each day before sunset, because they are poor and are counting on it. Otherwise, they may cry to the Lord against you, and you will be guilty of sin. So why does the Israelite, the people of God, need to do this? Because they reflect God's characters. God is generous, especially those who are needy. They also need to be generous, like their God. And when we get all the way over to chapter 26, Moses says in verse 18, And the Lord has declared this day that you are his people, his treasured possession as he promised that you are to keep all his commands. He has declared that he will set you in praise, fame, and honor high above all the nations he has made, that you will be a people holy to the Lord your God, as he promised. In other words, measure up your calling. Be who you are. You are God's people. You are holy. Now, be it. Be God's people who are holy. And these laws actually are how you do that. And even though that's going to look different for us, for example, as Christians, it's the same command. It's very interesting in Colossians chapter 3, Paul here wrote, measure up to your calling. You are God's holy people. Be who you are. Colossians chapter 3, begins with description, since you have been raised with Christ, which is your identity, then it follows what that means. Live out your calling. Be who you are. Since you have been raised, set your hearts and minds on things above. What does that mean? In verse 5, for example, put to death whatever belongs to your sinful nature. You used to do that stuff. But now you need to reflect on God's character instead. In verse 10, put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge, in the image of its creator. And verse 12 describes what the new self will look like. In verse 12, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love. Reflect God's character because He has made you holy. Be holy because He is holy. And the last reason why we need to pay attention to the law is because it points us to Jesus. Some Christians actually think that we should have nothing to do with it. All the law does, it actually shows our sinfulness. They think that since Jesus has replaced the law, since he has replaced the sacrifices, since he has declared all foods clean, since he has makes his people by faith, and told us simply just to love God and to love our neighbor, they think that Christians don't need to pay attention to the law. But that's not what Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 5, 
in verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Yes, Jesus has fulfilled it, but he hasn't replaced it. He is the goal or the culmination of the law, not its alternative. It is still there. It is still authoritative. It is still important. But the question is, what for? Because it points to Jesus. It shows us what he is like. It shows us why we need him so desperately. It asks the question that Jesus is the answer to. So if we are convinced why we need to do this, then so what? We better do it. We better do it. We, like the Israelites, were given enormous opportunities to reach the world in our backyard. As they were entering the promised land, the land where all the different nations live, we were also surrounded by different nations in Australia. According to .id Population Expert website, in Sydney alone, 38.6% of Sydney population were born overseas, with China, the UK, and India were on the top three countries where Sydney siders were born overseas. 35.8% of Sydney population did not speak English at home, with Mandarin, Arabic, and Cantonese on the top three. So the largest changes in the spoken language in the population of Greater Sydney between 2011 and 2016 were for those who are speaking Mandarin, there's about 95,000 persons changes. Nepali, about 16,000, close to 17,000 persons changes. Arabic, about 15,000 persons. And Vietnamese, about 14,000 persons. According to Macrindo research, we have seen the decline of Christianity in Australia and the rise of no religion in Australia in 2017 compared to 2011. Christian faith, like Catholics, Anglican, Presbyterian, and Reformed churches have lost their followers, while Islam and Hinduism are growing. There is a great opportunity for us to testify Christ to our neighbors by loving, caring, and acting justly to them. Not to benefit from them, but to love them with the love of Christ. Most of them will be receptive with actions rather than words, to be honest. And that is applicable to university campuses as well. As you know, my work is supported by you all in this church. It's mainly serving international students at Macquarie University campus. Although there is prediction that our number is going to be lower after COVID restriction, but we are still talking about thousands upon thousands at Macquarie campus alone. With the number of Chinese students falling, we are so excited to welcome the subcontinents into our campus. The Indians, the Nepalis, the Bangladeshis, and also the Southeast Asians, like the Malaysians, the Singaporeans, the Vietnamese, and the Indonesians. 
we have huge opportunities to reach the nations, the world in our backyard. And what is more exciting is that these students will be future leaders of this nation. One of my works, which is among Indonesian students, is actually to train Christians to build strong relationship with the Muslims so that they can share the gospel of Jesus. As you may know, Indonesia claims to have had 85% of Muslims out of 270 million of population. That is a lot of people. At Macquarie University, we have had about 400 Indonesian students on campus and roughly about 200 Muslim students on campus. The Christian students have been praying how they can love their neighbors by loving the Muslims. And one of the ways that creative ways that they have been doing is actually to cook for them during Ramadan month, during fasting month. And praise God, those efforts have been received well. When the Christian students deliver food, relationship is built. As we deliver food, many open their doors and Christians have had conversation for Muslims. For some Christians, this is actually the first time they ever had a conversation about faith with a Muslim. One comment from a Muslim student is this, this is the first time I ever received a package from a Christian. Praise God. God has given us enormous opportunities to reach our international neighbors. They are in our backyard. They are coming to us. How have we responded? Have we shown them that we are different? Have we been reminded of God's goodness as we do good to others? Has our obedience reflected God's characters? And as we do this, have we pointed our neighbors to Jesus? May I suggest practical ways as you can start caring for your international neighbors? Maybe three C's. First one, consider. If you have not identified, please do identify three households within your reach or work friends or school friends or uni friends that God has put you into your lives. Identify them, write their names, get to know them and their family, who they are living with, and start praying for them. Pray for them and also pray for creativity to care for them. Pray for opportunities to share the gospel to them. If you can, identify those who are different from you, those who are coming from different ethnicity or socioeconomic circle. The second C is care. As relationship grows, you may try to know them a little bit more intentionally. Ask them if they have any needs, worries, especially during COVID. Share common concerns that you may have. It may sound a little bit awkward at the beginning, but I believe that once you open up about your worry and concern, they will also open up theirs. Care for them. If they have young children and can't go to grocery, offer them some help. If they are away, offer them to pick up their meals, for example, or water their gardens. Be intentional and prayerfully creative. The third C is Christ. As the relationship grows, use opportunities to share the gospel to them. Tell them that you are a Christian. Tell them that you usually go to church on Sundays and now you have to stay home. 
Tell them the reasons why. And you can apply this principle to any neighbor that you have. Let us reach our international neighbor in our local backyard for Jesus Christ.